0: This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. I've already told you that Chapter 7 is an intermission it is an interlude. In the second part, you find the word assembly. Saints gathered together in great multitude include the 144,000. They are real Israel. They celebrate the litur- liturgy of the Feast of Tabernacles. In addition to the saints, all inhabitants in heaven worship God. The saints are portrayed as martyrs who are being gathered as a body at the end time. And last, they are before the throne of God in the land forever. Now, the interpretation. There are two ways of interpreting chapter 7. That is, it can be interpreted either literally or symbolically. The first interpretation explains the number one... 44,000 as the total number consisting of 12,000 sealed persons from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. The emphasis on the word Israel. The group of people that no one could number taken from every nation, tribe, people and languages are the Gentiles. though the word itself is not used. Now the second interpretation that teaches a symbolical approach to the numbers in this chapter. Throughout the apocalypse, numbers have symbolical meaning as is evident, for example, in the number 7 that conveys completeness. So it is more likely that the number 144,000 12 times 12,000 should be interpreted symbolically to express perfection. This becomes evident with respect to the measuring of the New Jerusalem, which is 12,000 stadia in length, in width, and in height. A perfect cube and symbol of perfection. 21 verse 16. Furthermore, furthermore, the two scenes of 144,000 and the incalculable multitude are two similar pictures that emphasize the same message. The first scene depicts idealism, the second realism. The two images depict the same reality. Now we have a few analogies. Rather interesting. Look, the seal on the forehead is found in 7 verse 3 and in 22 verse 4. The twelve tribes of Israel in 7 verse 4 through 8 and again referred to in 21 verse 12. (coughs) The nations. 7 verse 9 and 21 the verses 24 and 26. The throne of God, 7 verse 9 and 15 and in 22 verse 1 and 3. The service rendered, 7 verse 15 and 22 verse 3. The temple, 7 verse 15 and 21 verse 22. The dwelling of God, 7 verse 15 and 21 verse 3. Thirst and springs of living water, 7, verse 16 through 17, and 21, verse 6. The wiping of tears, 7, verse 17, and 21, verse 4. Now then, if we explain the numbers and names in chapters 21 and 22 symbolically, we expect that the names and numbers of chapter 7 must also be interpreted figuratively. Likewise, in this chapter, John presents Revelation as a series of pictures from a symbolical perspective. William Milligan observes, quote, It is the custom of the seer to heighten And spiritualize all Jewish names. The temple, the tabernacle, the altar, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, are to him the embodiments of ideas deeper than those literally conveyed by them. End of quote. Okay. And then we have the sequence. And I already mentioned R.H. Charles who advocates a number of transpositions in the apocalypse. One of them is chapter 7. Quote, (laughs) I restored, chapter 7, verses 5 through 6 to their original order in which the sons of Leah are followed by those of Rachel and these in terms first by the sons of Leah Handmaid, and then by Rachels, I have gone back to the Old Testament, and I have now restored uh, chapter seven as it should be read. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hands off. I have the copyright, says God, not R.H. Charles. And may I just say this? I, I know it's going to be c- recorded. But when R. H. Charles was taken from this earth, he passed away, and then faced God. I would not like to be in his shoes. Enough said. Okay, I begin with verse one, and I'll be selective. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, so that no wind might blow upon the earth, the sea, or any trees. Angels are God's messengers, sent out to be His servants. John is alluding to Old Testament passages for imagery. And so the four corners of the earth are actually the four winds of heaven, the four directions. Then we read verse 2 and 3, And I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom was given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth and the sea, the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, what is meant by the seal being sealed? On page 248, I go into it. What is a seal? William Hendrickson notes first that it is the most precious thing under heaven, and then he provides three functions of the seal. For one, it prevents tampering. Next, it ensures ownership. And last, on a document, it certifies genuineness. Now, how are God's servants marked with the seal? The people of Judah had turned their backs on God and His temple and instead of worshipping, were instead worshipping nature. In a vision, Prophet Ezekiel saw a man dressed in linen with pen and inkwell in his hand who was told to go through Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of all those who were grieving because of the idolatry in the land. People were slaughtered, except those who had the mark on their foreheads. Symbol of God's people is the invisible mark of the Father and the Lamb, Revelation 14.1, to signify that the saints are members of God's family, purchased by the Son and filled with the Holy Spirit. By contrast, unbelievers have the mark of the beast on their right hand and forehead, and the number is 666. I go on to verse 4, <clears throat> page 249. And I heard the number of those who had been sealed to be 144,000 sealed from every tribe of Israel. The number of those who are sealed is 144,000, which is 12 times 12,000. Times a thousand, that is twelve squared times ten cubed. The number twelve in the Apocalypse always refers to that which is perfect. The saints, the woman with the twelve stars on her head, the twelve tribes of Israel, the various aspects of the New Jerusalem, and the twelve fruit bearing trees. The number 1,000 is 10 times 10 times 10, which is a multitude. 10 is the number of fullness in the decimal system. Hence, 144,000 is a symbolic number that expresses a multitude marked by absolute perfection. 12 tribes of Israel times 12 apostles times 1,000 equals Perfection times perfection times a multitude. Here is the picture of the ideal that is followed by the picture of the actual in verse 9. We read, From every tribe of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000, Reuben, 12,000, Gad, 12,000, Asher 12,000, Naphtali 12,000, Manasseh 12,000, Simeon 12,000, Levi 12,000, Ithaca 12,000, Zebulun 12,000, Joseph 12,000, Benjamin 12,000. And now the difficulties. The first problem we face is the wording of verse 4 from every tribe of Israel which is explicated with a list of twelve tribes. However, elsewhere in the New Testament, the expression twelve tribes refers to Israel as a nation, (coughs) not to twelve individual tribes. The twelve tribes form the basis on which the structure of the house of God is built and completed, and all the inhabitants of God's house form one family without any division. Believers of peoples, other than Israel, are grafted into the olive tree. So, to use Paul's illustration, and grow alongside the natural branches. Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. And now the structure. The sequence of the twelve tribes listed here differs considerably from those recorded elsewhere in the Old Testament. For example, quote, These were the twelve sons of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. You find that in First Chronicles 2, verse 1 and 2. But Judah precedes Reuben, in the list in chapter 7 of the book of Revelation. Reuben is the firstborn, but Dan, uh, Judah is mentioned first. Dan is missing from the list, and in his place to make the number 12 complete, the name of Manasseh appears as the grandson of Israel. There are at least three similar features in the list of Revelation and First Chronicles. First, apart from the initial two verses in chapter 2, The chronicles, chronicler catalogs foremost the families of Judah. Second, he lists the family of Manasseh, but puts Ephraim in the place of Joseph. And third, he omits the family of Dan. Now, the reason for deleting the name of Dan from the list goes back to a narrative in which the descendants of Dan committed idolatry, Judges chapter 18. They were also the first to perpetrate the sin of apostasy, for they accepted the golden calf of Jeroboam placed in the northern part of Israel as a center of worship. He chose this location so that the people of Israel could worship there and would not need to travel to Jerusalem. Because of their grievous sin, the tribe of Dan was among the first to be exiled. And after the period of exile came to an end, Scripture no longer mentions Dan. John also excludes Ephraim from this list. This tribe likewise agreed with Jeroboam to place another golden calf at Bethel as a substitute for the true worship of God in Jerusalem. Ephraim, therefore, should not be subsumed, subsumed under the name of Joseph, for Joseph has taken the place of Ephraim. The arrangement of the twelve tribes in Revelation differs from various reason, for various reasons. Judah is mentioned first, because his is the tribe in which Jesus was born. Levi's name is included because the context has nothing to do with military service or the material possession of territory. Scholars have proposed a number of solutions. For instance, Henry Barclay Sweet suggests that the sequence of John's list originates partly in the birth order of the twelve patriarchs and partly in the geographical location of the twelve tribes. Judah is a royal tribe followed by Reuben the firstborn. The tribe of Gad was given the territory to the north of the tribe of Reuben, east of the Jordan. The tribes of Asher and Naphtali were in the northern and central part of Galilee with that of Manasseh in the center of Israel. Simeon and Levi as the sons of Lehi, Le- Leah followed Reuben in their succession of birth. Tribes of Issachar and Zebulun occupied the southern part of Galilee. And Joseph and Benjamin were the sons of Rachel. Now, Richard Baucom suggests that at the time Revelation was written, a modified list differed from the standard order of featuring the sons in relation to their mother. The sons of Leah are Judah, Reuben, Benjamin, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, and Zebulun, of which the last four were placed in block form after the sequence of Gad, Asher, Naphtali, and Manasseh. This indeed is a helpful explanation, even if questions remain about Joseph and Manasseh and the exclusion of Ephraim. The sequence of these names is not such, uh, is, as such, is not important. Suffice it to say that in general terms, it is virtually impossible to account for the unusual order and composition of the list of tribes by interpreting it as descriptive of ethnic Israel. But seeing this, seeing in this list a portrayal of the church as the new Jerusalem, the new Israel, resolves the difficulty quite simply. Significant is the great multitude that no one can number. comes forth out of the twelve tribes of Israel in response to the Great Commission. A worldwide multitude has come to faith in Christ that with the saints of the Old Testament constitutes the full number of God's servants. Now, uh, there is something that I would like to bring to your attention if I can find it now. Yes, here it is. Look at footnote 17. Footnote 17. This is in connection with 144,000 is a symbolic number that expresses a multitude marked by absolute perfection. And I take this from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, Ringstorff. And then I continue. <coughs> Richard, <coughs> excuse me, Richard Bauckham avers that the 144,000 are the Israelite army of the Lion of Judah fitted to reconquer the promised land in the Messianic War. And see his article, <coughs> the list of the tribes in Revelation 17, 7 again. Refer to his climax of prophecy, and the pages 215 to 37. Although he sees a model in Numbers 1, Revelation 7 points to the Lamb who was triumphant and the victory which saints and angels share. Further, the numbers 144,000 and 12,000 are to be understood symbolically, not literally. And next, Revelation 7 does not speak about a messianic war. Indeed, the context mentions servants of our God, not soldiers of our God. Verses 4 through 8 are devoid of military terms. Levi's name is listed, for the context does not mention military service or the possession of land. And last, if the 144,000 are male soldiers then women are excluded from that number. John mentions the army of the Lord in 1919, but he gives no indication that the army itself participates in warfare. And I think that does it quite well. Good. We now go on to verse 9, where we have the great multitude. Now, let me say once more what I'm trying to prove to you is the difference between a literal interpretation of chapter 7 and the symbolical interpretation. No names are mentioned. Did you hear? I merely said literal and symbolical. I continue with verse 9. After these things I saw and looked a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, they were dressed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Okay, a few words about that, and then we'll stop. By reading the Apocalypse, we become increasingly aware that John writes the Revelation from a Jewish perspective the author repeatedly presents his material in seemingly repetitious form meant to stress a certain point. Two similar accounts of the same thing often emphasize the specific revelation John records. The first account is the ideal, while the second is reality. The figure 144,000 and the subsequent summation of the Twelve Tribes with 12,000 persons each, and the suit symbolically represents the ideal. With the use of numbers, John illustrates perfection as the ideal. In the next illustration, <coughs> he describes a reality by which he is permitted to see in heaven, namely, the saints standing before the throne of God and the Lamb. He had depicted elders and angels surrounding the the divine throne in preceding chapters 4 and 5. But now he notes that an innumerable multitude enters heaven and approaches the throne. The first picture portrays God's people from a historical perspective, while the second picture displays the incalculable number, the throng that is as the completed product of Christ's redemptive work. The phrase after this introduces the new picture that pertains not to earth, but to heaven. John heard the number 144,000 in the preceding scene. Now he sees a great multitude that no one could number. He first notes the tribe of Israel. Next, he depicts saints from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages. The word nation, ethnos in Greek, means all the peoples that constitute a nation. Often several people groups make up an entire nation, so the Greek term should be understood as all-inclusive. These people groups include the Jewish believers as part of this countless throng. The sealing of all the saints is understood and therefore needs no second mention. Here is the picture of the universal church in its fullest sense fulfilling Jesus' word and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Matthew twenty four fourteen. 14. Be- Beckwith asked the question, Who then, in the author's intention, are the 144,000 that are sealed? His answer is that these people are the whole body of the church, Jewish and Gentile alike. He notes that this observation conforms with John the Apocalyptist, for it does the least violence to the universal spirit of the book. Indeed, John mentions 144,000 again in 14 verse 1 where the saints have the name of the Lamb and the Father written on their foreheads. These saints constitute all the redeemed with the divine names as a seal on their foreheads. They represent the multitude that no one can number. And here is where we stop for half an hour in care of chapter 11... In the introductory material, I spent a little bit of time on chapter 11, so that is covered. I would like to take time out now to look at chapter 12, Revelation chapter 12. We are on page 351. <clears throat> Bottom of the page, Aspects of Warfare and Salvation. We now have come to the center of the book and are entering the second part of Revelation. There is no close connection between the content of chapter 11 and that of chapter 12. Here is a new beginning. For Revelation basically has two main parts. These parts are divided into Christ's church persecuted by the world, and Christ with the Church persecuted by Satan. In addition, chapter one features an, in, an introduction to this book. Chapter twenty-two, a conclusion. First, we note that the structure of Revelation tends to teach us a cyclical instead of a linear linear approach. This approach explains the apparent break in the middle of the apocalypse. But the writer calls attention to Christ and his church persecuted by Satan. Being cast out of heaven with his angels, the devil gives authority to the Antichrist and the false prophet, the beast coming up out of the sea and the beast coming up out of the earth. All who do not have the mark of the beast or the number of his name are unable to buy or sell. But Christ takes on Satan and his cohorts, namely the Antichrist and and the false prophet. He appears to the Son of Man to inaugurate the judgment day. Come right in. Find yourself a seat. And if you can look over somebody's shoulder and read along, you're most welcome. We are on page 352 of my commentary. Middle of the page. After these three cycles, John continues with his series of sevens, namely the seven bowls of wrath, chapters 15, 16. Divine wrath poured on God's enemies in the description of the final judgment, (chapter 16, the verses 17 through 21. The woman called Babylon and all those who follow her are thrown down, chapters 17 and 18. The rider on the white horse comes to judge with justice and make war on his enemies. 19, verse 11 through 21. And God's judgments, judgment reaches its completion when the books are opened and each person is judged. Chapter 20, the verses 11 through 15. In brief, the apocalypse reveals parallels that develop progressively with each cycle. Next, Chapter 12 reflects typical Johannine repetition that serves to emphasize his unique presentation. For instance, the time period of 1260 days appears in verse 6 where God prepared a place for a woman in the desert. And in verse 14, this woman flew, not fly, flew to a place prepared for her in the desert for a time, times, and a half time. These two time references are the same in duration, 1260 days equals 42 months or three and a half years. And third, the chapter pictures both an ideal situation and a present reality. The symbolism of the glorious woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head is an ideal picture of this woman having reached the zenith. Back of this ideal picture lies reality. It is the reality that takes form in the birth and ascension of Christ. It includes heavenly warfare when the archangel Michael hurls Satan with his angels to the earth. Verse 9. It points to the wrath of the devil who pursues the woman as as she flees to a place Prepared for her while receiving help from the earth, verse 16, it portrays the followers of Christ waging a spiritual war against Satan and enduring the devil's wrath, verse 17. Conclusively, the scene that depicts the exalted woman is idealism. The scene that describes the persecuted church is realism. Last, Chapter 12 stresses the defeat of Satan. His defeat is highlighted by the verb cast out or cast down, which appears, 12 time, me, which appears five times in succession. Throughout this chapter, Satan is portrayed as a five-time loser while Christ and his church are victorious. The devil attempted to devour the male child, but God snatched him up to his throne. Verse 5. Satan fought Michael and his angels, but lost. Verse 9. The dragon pursued the woman, but God prepared a place for her in the desert. Verses 6 and 14. The serpent wanted the woman to drown in a torrent, but the earth swallowed up the river. Verses 15 and 16. Satan lost when he waged war against the woman's offspring, who kept on obeying God's commands and holding on to Jesus' testimony, verse 17. We are on page 353. Now we go into the segment of the woman and the dragon. The question may very well be asked, is John relying on a Greek myth of Apollo, born of a goddess Leto? It also mentions the dragon Python. And next, there is the Babylonian creation myth about Tiamat and the seven-headed monster slain by the god Marduk. As Tiamat swept a third of the stars from the sky. Third, there are Persian and Egyptian myths with similar stories. And last, there are coins with messages. One portrays Emperor Domitian with an image of his son whose hand reaches out to seven stars. And then a coin with an image of his son with the moon and the six stars. Also one with the son and his mother Domitia who is depicted as a goddess. What shall we do with all this? Even though John was familiar with various mythological stories of the pagan world, we must reject any suggestion that he borrowed from these sources to create the apocalypse. God revealed the content of revelation to Jesus, who in turn told John to write down what he observed. Therefore, the apocalypse is a God-given book This does not mean that John mechanically wrote down what he was told, but rather that he wrote the visions he saw in the framework of symbols. The sun, moon, and crown of twelve stars adorn the woman to make her appearance beautiful and mighty. At the same time, these heavenly bodies are subordinate to her. She is far greater than they are we see a parallel in Joseph's dream of sun, moon, and eleven stars bowing before him. Genesis 37. John shows the reader a picture of the struggle between a woman and Satan, which is a throwback to the beginning of human history when God addressed both the woman and the serpent. It depicts the spiritual warfare that God's people have faced ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin. This warfare becomes acute with a woman's delivery of a male child whom the serpent stands ready to to devour at the moment of birth. Following the birth of the child, John describes warfare in heaven and as an interlude, verses 10 through 11, 12, John records a heavenly hymn. Then he concludes this chapter with a second report on Satan's war against the woman and her offspring in verses 13 through 17. Now we go into chapter 12, the first six verses. Verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. Translators differ in expressing the meaning of the words great sign. Here are two examples a great wonder, you find that in the King James Version, and a great and wondrous sign in the NIV. The sign is a portent marvelous to behold for it is large and visible in heaven. The word sign appears seven times in Revelation to portray the work of either God or Satan or his fallen angels. And the adjective great describes a sign here and in 15.1 where it refers to seven angels with seven plagues that fulfill God's wrath. The adjective and noun also occur in 1313, where the second beast, the false prophet, performs great signs for the devil in full view of the people on earth. We read, A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. This sentence can be understood only symbolically. Yet we have to ask the identity of the woman. Who is she? Is she Mary, the mother of Jesus? Early Christian literature lists no references to that effect. <coughs> Epiphanius of Salamis, approximately the middle of the fourth century, 350 is the first one to note that some individuals unnamed were identifying the woman with Mary. End of quote. But the New Testament speaks against this exegesis, because for herself Mary assumes a modest place in society and church. Also, during the Middle Ages, the majority of writers equated the woman not with Mary, but with the church. Other scholars interpret the woman to be Israel, recorded by God as his wife. When John composed the Apocalypse, however, many Jews in the dispersion were members of the synagogue of Satan. They persecuted the Christians. Further, Jewish people, unable to rebuild Jerusalem after its destruction in August 70, have left no record of a national conversion after that date. Still others see Satan attacks God's covenant people from the time of the fall into sin to the consummation so that the woman he assaults represents the covenant community of both the Old Testament and the New Testament eras. The people of these two eras demonstrate a oneness by calling her mother. She gave birth to the Messiah, For she represents Christ's human ancestry that incorporates Gentile Christians of the New Covenant. The woman's children, John intimates, intimates, are those who were keeping the commandments of God and held to the testimony of Jesus. Verse 17, John teaches the unity of the people of God. The crown of twelve stars represents God's people exemplified in the twelve patriarchs of the Old Covenant era and in the twelve apostles of the New Covenant times. Number twelve is the description of God's people. Notice the difference between the (laughs) cosmic glory of this woman and the human glitter of the great prostitute. Verse two. She was pregnant and she cried out in birth pains and in anguish to give birth. This glorious woman was clothed with the brilliance of the sun as a source of light that was reflected by the moon. She had a crown of twelve stars on her head that symbolized complete victory. She was pregnant and about to give birth which symbolizes the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Indeed, This verse is a reflection of the entire Old Testament period in which Satan displays his enmity toward God. He attacks the saints whom God places in the world to occupy the central position. They have been and are a source of light that they they received from their Maker and Redeemer. Thus, God's people, through His Word, reflect His brilliance, to dispel the darkness of the world. The woman is in pain and anguish and is giving birth. When John writes the last book in the Bible, the birth of Jesus has taken place a century earlier. But the author highlights this text in the period of Jesus' birth to stress the severe conflict Satan has fomented and continues to foment against God and His people. Verse 3, And there appeared another sign in heaven, and looked, there was a great red dragon that had seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. Chapter 12 is the first chapter in the Apocalypse that juxtaposes the woman and the dragon. It is also the first chapter that introduces two signs in heaven, one for each, with the difference that the adjective great describes the woman's sign. The sign of the dragon is not called great. Instead, the imperative look Alerts the reader's attention to a horrific dragon, not the sign, but the dragon is great that is enormous in size. The dragon's color is red, which symbolizes the color of warfare. The Greek word "peros," fiery red, is used both here and for the rider on the right on the red horse, six verse four. Although mythology has numerous accounts of dragons, John himself explains the meaning of the word dragon. Quote, And the great dragon was cast down that ancient serpent called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. Verse 9. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated, in part or in whole, for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.